Amen. It is so good to see my very, very, and I told her that I would make an announcement and possibly embarrass her, but it's good to see my dear friend, our apparent liaison from Timber Ridge, Miss Smith, back in the sanctuary tonight. Amen. By the way, she is a retired sergeant major, so elder, my repertoire of retired sergeant majors are growing rapidly. I remember when I was a buck sergeant, I would fear the Chevron rockers, the star in the fruit salad, and man, it strikes fear in the heart of every enlisted. Amen. And now as a civilian, I've got friends that are star majors. Amen. I love how the Lord works things out. Amen. It is a privilege and an honor to share this particular preaching teaching tonight. This is what the Lord laid on my heart during general conference. Thank you so much, Ensemble. Uh, it was during the general conference that they asked me several weeks ago. The Lord worked it out where they had a ca- cancellation. And it, the, somebody laid me on the heart of one of the ministers and they asked me to speak. And this particular subject is near and dear to my heart. And it is imperative in the generation, in the societal paradigm shift that we live in today. We need to be situationally aware on how the enemy is moving in this generation and in this time, in this society, and how things are beginning to progress quickly. Amen. And we have to be aware. We've got to be prayed up. We have to be situationally aware of what is transpiring. Amen. I'm going to be reading in the 78th Psalm, verses 1 through 11. If you feel comfortable in standing, can we stand to our feet this evening? To give honor to the infallible word of God. That means without error. Amen. Give ear, O my people. That means listen up. To my law, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings of old, which which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. Showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he had commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children. To make them known to their children that the generation to come, that the generation to come might know them. Even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And might not, as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law and forget his works, his wonders that he had showed them. Amen. If we feel comfortable in doing so tonight, can we close our eyes and lift our hands? Can we begin to lift our voice all over this sanctuary, all over this congregation as a collective of those born again of water and fire? Can we begin to lift our voice right now? The Bible said that we've been endued with power when the Holy Ghost came. Begin to lift your voice right now in faith. Sons of God, begin to lift your voice. Daughters of Zion, begin to lift your voice right now. Begin to invite his presence into this sanctuary right now. Lord God of Jacob, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for 
your truth. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. And God, tonight we just pray, God, that you infiltrate this house right now, God. That you begin right now to rearrange our thinking, God. That you create in us a clean heart. And Lord, you renew in us that right spirit, God. Lord, begin to change our understanding. Lord, show us, God, your ways and your intentions, God. And let those intentions yet come to fruition in Jesus' name. Can we give the Lord a hand clap of praise tonight? For he is worthy of all praise. He is my ha-tikva. He is my hope. Baruch Hashem Adonai Yeshua. Blessed be the name of our Lord Jesus tonight. Amen. You may be seated. Tonight, I'd like to preach this particular thought, our area of operation, our area of operation. Anybody that's been overseas, spent time in Iraq, anybody that was military, they would understand that the area of operation is the place in a combat zone or in a military operation that you are responsible for. We would call it an AO. And each one of us in this walk with God is given an area of operation. We are to be responsible for it. We shall always place mission first. We shall never accept defeat. We'll sh we shall never quit. And we shall never leave a fallen comrade. That area of operation is where we put our effort. That area of operation is where we look for the enemy and we learn their enemy's tactics. To be successful in the mission, we've got to learn the tactics of the enemy. To be successful in this walk with God, we've got to learn the tactics of our enemy. Amen. As you know and shared with this church many times, I am a two-time combat veteran. I was served in the United States Army as a military police officer. I was in the initial invasion or push in Iraq in 2003 to 2004. Many of you were there, and we probably crossed paths at some time. And then I went back in 2005 to 2006. And I learned in 2003 and 2004 that the tactics of the enemy were very specific for that year. In that particular year, our mission was to bring down the regime of Saddam Hussein. And those that we fought were the loyalists, the Ba'ath Party. Not that they took a bath. They were called the Ba'ath Party, B-A-A-T-H. Those were the Iraqi Republican Guard. Those were those that were loyal to Saddam Hussein. And the tactics were very uh, just ambushes and, and firefights, but it was very conventional. And then as time progressed, they understood that to beat the American soldier, to beat the enemy, that they had to rearrange their tactics. They had to change their skill sets. They had to change on how they approached and how they attacked. And us as soldiers, we had to understand. We had to get a briefing. We had to be situationally aware on how the enemy desired to take us out. Now, I went back in 2005 to 2006, and the tactics of the enemy were a lot different. In 2005, 2006, we dealt with the insurgency, the push. So we dealt with Iranians. We dealt with those that snuck across from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda members, those at the beginning of ISIS, and all these various characters. We dealt with certain tactics that Iran placed into Iraq. We had to deal with those explosive force projectiles that were an explosive in a coffee can with a copper, uh, a copper lid. And when it blew up, it became like a shotgun slug. And it went through armored Humvees and Bradley fighting vehicles. And there were many more casualties the second time around. 
But I learned that the tactics that I had, my first deployment, I could not apply to my second deployment. I couldn't attack Korean War tactics. I couldn't implement those tactics my second deployment. I couldn't use the tactics from World War II in the tactics in Operation Iraqi Freedom. And that is how we need to be. We have to be versatile in our tactics with our enemy. Amen. Our enemy uses direct attacks and indirect attacks. As I said, the enemy may use small arms, rockets, explosives, roadside bombs, however it is. But the tactics is what we have to understand. And I remember that every time I left a wire, every time that I put my kid on and I went out on my hundreds of missions and I went out the gate, there was a big sign that said complacency kills. It's been said before that a moment of complacency can lead to a lifetime of regret. Allow me to reiterate it again. A moment of complacency can lead to a lifetime of regrets. I believe this is a true statement. Amen. It reminds me, unfortunately, at my second deployment, we, went, we were going into the green zone. The green zone was a section of Baghdad that was walled off, and it was where all the embassies and the dignitaries were. And that particular gate that we went in, it was a gate we went through every day. And we thought, man, not much has happened at this gate. Nothing is going to change at this gate. And we were coming into the gate, coming from the Baghdad International Airport. And as you come through the gate, you have two lanes. You have the military lane that you pull through, and you have the Iraqi contractor civilian side that you go through. And in the center of those lanes were the Iraqi National Guard. And we were coming through that particular lane, and it was a normal mission, right? Man, I'm going to go in. I'm going to meet up with the commanding general. We're going to go get chow, or we're going to go home. And we came through the gate, and when you go through the gate, you're told to swing your weapon a certain way for the safety of everybody. And at that moment, an SUV started gunning towards the gate. A Suburban, a nice Suburban, went in and gunned at an estimated 75, 80 miles an hour and smashed into the Iraqi troops. So I hear on my comms, I hear on my radio, hey, we got an accident. Okay, Roger, we'll pull through. We're going to stop and check it out. And a few seconds later, boom, it was a suicide V-bid. It was a vehicle-borne suicide bomber packed with an estimated 450 to 500 pounds of explosives. Praise God that my convoy was protected by the hand of God because we pulled up that particular video and half the convoy was engulfed in flame. But unfortunately, the Iraqi National Guardsmen were killed. And my rear gunner, who I still keep in contact with, was living with that regret for years, even to this day. He fell into alcoholism. He fell into drugs. He fell into deep, deep suicidal ideations that transpired. And I asked him, I said, what's going on? He said, that day, if I would have just had my gun to the rear, I could have protected and saved the lives of those Iraqis. I could have protected our convoy. What is it if we are not careful that we allow in our complacency? And I reiterated in that particular situation, it, it wasn't his fault. Those things happen. But in us, we've got to be diligent and not slip into complacency. Amen. And so... The enemy's job is to demoralize our willingness to fight. It could be that 
direct fight, but many times it's indirect. It's psychological. It's psychological operations, or they call it psyops, where you begin to whittle away your willingness to fight. And that is how our enemy operates, is that he whittles away our our willingness to continue mission. He whittles that willingness to do what we are supposed to do. It reminds me of World War II. There, There was a a Japanese, imperial Japanese woman that would hijack the FM radios throughout all the Pacific on every island. And her name was the Tokyo Rose. And she spoke perfect English. And she would hijack the AFN radios of all the soldiers and Marines on the islands and say, why are you fighting? Why even fight? The government is just using you. Lay down your weapons. Go back to the United States and we'll take care of the islands. And can you imagine the psyche of that Marine that has been on the island without any food or without a shower and the psychological warfare that would do? That even was used in Vietnam with Hanoi Hannah. And she would call from Hanoi and take over the FN radios of all the service members in Vietnam and said, why are you fighting, GI? Just go back. Your government is just using you. You don't need to fight. And that is how an enemy begins to attack our morale. How the enemy begins to attack our willingness to fight and our situational awareness of the combat that we are in, in the battle that we are in, in the conflict that we are in. Amen. I remember not too long ago there was Sergeant Burdall. Some of you may know him or not. He went AWOL in Afghanistan. I don't know how. Miss Smith, you could go AWOL in a combat zone, but he did. He left his forward operating base that night and went into that particular city in Afghanistan. And all his battle buddies left to follow him and to try to find him. And many of them were killed trying to find the person that walked away. We have to understand that when we are uh, deviants and we diverge from what we are called to do, there are casualties as a result. Amen. And so five years later, they found Sergeant Birdall. He was kidnapped by the Taliban. And when they did a prisoner exchange, here came Sergeant Birdall, looking just like a Taliban. He converted to Islam and looked just like the Taliban and cost the lives of others. If we are not careful, we allow things to persuade and to manipulate and seduce us in the things that we are not supposed to do. Complacency kills. And a moment of complacency can lead to a lifetime of regret. Amen. Thinking about in, in the military, in force protection, there is something that is called hard target and soft target. Soft target would be like your restaurants. Where if somebody came in, you could have a multitude, mass casualty situation. A school, until they kind of harden a little bit, a school is considered a soft target. Walmart, a movie theater, a restaurant, all these places are where an enemy can just slip in and take out as many casualties as as they desire. That is called a soft target. But a hard target is one that has, like a military base, where you have walls, concertina wire. Amen. You've got security in place to protect those inside the base. But my favorite part is where they have an ID section, where they scan and vet to find out who is authorized in the base or not. Do they have the the clearance to come in? And they check who comes in. Are you 
Are you okay to come in here? Are you safe to come in this building? Complacency can lead to a lifetime of regret. Amen. Our enemy, Satan, that is his objective here tonight. Since the beginning of time, since the creation of existence, since his fall, his objective is to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy does not rest. Our enemy attacks us directly, but mostly his area of operation is the indirect. It's the propaganda. Let me tell you the lie until you believe it. It's to manipulate. It's to persuade. It's to seduce. That's his objective. Because if he comes against the church as a whole, he may succeed at whittling away a little bit, but God is for us. Amen. But what do we leave open? Do we check those IDs? Are you authorized? Are you supposed to be in here? Do you have the clearance by the word of God to come in here? Amen. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober and vigilant for our enemy. The adversary of our soul is like a roaring lion. He's not the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a pseudo-wannabe lion, but he's like the lion seeking whom he may, be, may devour. But we are to be sober and vigilant. We cannot be complacent. He is in here now, more than likely, looking on how he can manipulate, persuade, and seduce. Amen. We have to be situationally aware. It also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, we cannot be ignorant of the devil's devices. A device is our stumbling blocks. That is his weapons of his warfare. That is what he utilizes to attack us. And we cannot be ignorant of his devices. Ignorant not in the derogatory sense, but ignorant means unlearned. We have to be aware of how he attacks, how he manipulates. What he does to whittle away the church of God, the body of Christ. What does he do to whittle away what started in Jerusalem? Amen. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6. Hosea had a coming to Jesus meeting with the children of Israel. Well, it would have been a coming to Jehovah meeting because that name wasn't revealed yet. But Israel and Hosea was having... A little bit of a rebellious state. And that prophet Hosea came in and had a meeting with them. It was a rebuke. And he says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. My people. This is God speaking through the prophet. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So if I'm learning the word of God and something's a sin, I'm accountable for that as pastor talked about this morning. I'm destroyed because I don't take the time to be situationally aware on how the enemy is attacking the modern church. Amen. And he also said that you have rejected my knowledge, so I reject you. We we dive and search for the mysteries or the hidden truths of God. But if we reject it, he rejects us. We are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities on high. Amen. I don't wrestle through my AR-15. I don't wrestle and I don't fight with my Glock. I don't fight with my fist. I fight through my prayer. 
I fight through my submission. I fight through being situationally aware on how the enemy is attacking the church. Amen. We know that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Amen. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. Amen. Are you ready to see what our battlefield is? What's going on in the church world today across the ecumenical spectrum, that means every church is that the enemy is destroying the next generation. We look throughout scripture of example after example when it is a generational deficiency. It is a generation, generational delinquency. Something transpires in the generation. The enemy comes at us in our checkbooks. The enemy comes at us through our health, but God works that out. But it's the indirect. It's a propaganda. It's the seduction. It's the persuasion that the enemy does, and it is our children, parents. It is the next generation. We read in Psalm 78 that there was a generation that was a stubborn people. We are to teach them. We are to disciple the next generation and the children. Because if the enemy takes out a generation, he's won. Amen. Ronald Reagan said it well. Freedom is one generation away from extinction. Freedom is not inherited through bloodlines, but it must be fought, protected for one day. I don't want to be the old man sitting on the porch telling them about freedom and liberty. We're one generation from losing this truth if we're not careful. We're one generation from losing what we know is the precepts if we are not careful. I hope we're listening tonight, and I really hope there's reflection and introspection with it. The enemy is after our youth. The enemy is after my children if I'm not diligent. The enemy is after the next one to carry the torch. Amen. Amen. Because if we're not careful, complacency births. Rebellion and disobedience. Complacency births rebellion and disobedience if we're not careful. Amen. Satan manipulates our soft target, which is our children. They are defenseless. They are vulnerable. They are highly impressionable. That's why pure pressure is such a powerful tool of the enemy. But have we hardened the target of our children? Complacency. Births, many things. Amen. We are going to look at some generational examples here where there is a deficiency that transpires. Something happens between generations. I think of Aaron's sons in Leviticus 10. They offered a strange fire at the tabernacle in the wilderness. And they were consumed by the all-consuming fire. They were killed. Amen. They offered a strange fire. They offered an unauthorized fire. What happened between Aaron and their, his sons? We know that it was possibly pride. It could have been the ignorance. But what did Aaron do to teach up to that point? We know that Aaron allowed a golden calf to be built after 40 days. What did Aaron do for his sons to set them up for success? We know that there's that certain point when children are accountable for their own actions before them and God. 
And we pray for the prodigal son to come home. But what do we do as parents in this generation, in this church, to protect our children? Amen. We know that the unauthorized or the strange fire caused their life. What did Aaron do up to that point to disciple? Amen. I think of 1 Samuel, Eli's sons in the tabernacles. We know that uh, Eli was the Kohan Gadol. He was the high priest in Shiloh or in Shiloh at the tabernacle. And we know that his two sons did many disgusting things in the tabernacle. There was lust going on. They stole the offering. They did all these abominable things. And the people got upset and went to Eli and said, you see what your sons are doing? Did Eli talk? Did Eli parent? Did Eli disciple the way he should have to prevent it for this? Because if he would have said something, if he would have stepped up and parented, things would have been different. His neck sure would have appreciated it. Because we know that they thought that they were operating as the Kohan and the priest, and they went out to the battle with the Philistines, and the Philistines slaughtered them and took the ark. Because there was a delinquency in the generation. There was a delinquency between parent and child somewhere there. Something transpired. What would have happened if Eli would have had a coving Jehovah meeting with them? Reprimanded them as a parent ought to. What would have transpired? Thank goodness that the ark came home. Amen. I think about the entire book of Judges. The entire book of Judges is a very cyclic pattern between the generation right after Joshua died. They needed a leader. They forgot God. They were in bondage. They needed a deliverer. They were rescued. A generation came along and forgot God, and it was a cycle where they needed 15 judges. What happened with the generations? If the generations were taught and invested that the way that they should have, we wouldn't have needed a Samson. We wouldn't have needed a Deborah or a Gideon. But what happened in this cycle? They were delivered. They forgot God. They were in bondage. They needed a deliverer, and then they were rescued. It is a generational delinquency. Amen. I think about the book of Kings. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, and he was Solomon the wise until he married foreign women. And those foreign women brought in Baal Peor, that child-sacrificing God. They brought in Moloch, that child-sacrificing God. They brought in Asheroth, the fertility, sexuality God. They brought in all these abominable things that were taught in the generation before not to have. David, a man after God's own heart, I'm pretty sure reiterated it. Now, there was some family drama, but what happened in the generation? And they called him the wisest man. And then subsequently after that, those, those gods didn't come from the high places until it split the kingdom in the north and the south. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. The, tri the region in the north, the ten tribes, there was never a good king. They worshipped these idols until they were brought away in captivity in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. What happened to the generation? What happened? What happened to the diligence of parents to children? Because the enemy works in generations. He works on the vulnerable. He works in the impressionable. He works on those that are defenseless. 
Amen. And of course there is the time that great men and women of God have invested so much in their children. And their children are accountable for the actions. I'm not talking about that. I'm believing in the prodigal son. But I'm talking about us until that point. What have we done? Amen. I think about Absalom. Absalom with his great mane of hair. Who thought he could be king. What if David said something? Would the story have been different? He allowed the peer pressure of his friends to to persuade him that he was to be the king. That he was to be the anointed one. Till it caused a civil war and a son being killed by David's men. And David being to the point of sorrow that it almost destroyed David himself. But what if David went and talked to him? Don't listen to these people that you're spending the night with. Don't listen to the persuasion they're telling you from truth. What if David said something? Absalom was one of his favorite sons. But if David would have stepped up and parented, what would have happened to Absalom? You know, today in the Kinron Valley, in the Valley of uh, Kings, right in front of the Eastern Gate, there is a tomb of Absalom. It's also mentioned in 2 Samuel, that tomb is still there today. And every Hasidic Jew, ultra-Orthodox, Orthodox Jews, and even conservative Jews, they bring their children down to the tomb of Absalom and throw rocks at the tomb. Why? To teach them what happens when a child is disobedient. The enemy moves in on our generational gap. That is our area of operation. Amen. Deuteronomy 18 gives a whole list of abominations. That is something that God hates and hates forever. Amen. This included necromancy, soothsayer, the observer of times, wizards and witches. Do I need to reemphasize what's an abomination? All these different things that God hates, but there's one that he despises the most. It's also mentioned in Proverbs where it says, those that shed innocent blood. But Deuteronomy 18 talks about passing your sons and daughters through the fire. I'm here to tell you, they're not going by themselves. The parents willingly put the children through the fire. This is the the Moabite, Canaanite God of Moloch. This was a child-sacrificing God that was mentioned in the book of Acts, all throughout the Old Testament, and have gone under other names. As many of you remember, Moloch in many renditions and many historical documents and archaeology, he was a giant brass bull. And he was placed outside a certain village or an establishment. And he would just be sitting there as that brass bull. And there would be a fire burning in his belly. So all that brass is hot. All that metal is hot. And so you have a desperate parent or a desperate couple wanting a good crop this year. Saying, I need prosperity. I need to be blessed. So they would take their newborn, they would take their infant, and they would produce them to the priest of Moloch. And the priest would sit there smiling, that spirit that consumes children, and take that child and turn the parent around. They would walk away from the parent, and then the priest would start banging the drums. Start playing the flutes. 
start playing the harps and start screaming out loud. And then the child would be placed on the hands of Moloch. And the child will be burnt to death until it is ashes. And the reason that the priest, the reason that the priest of Moloch would do that is to dissuade and distract the parent from the cries of their sons and their daughters. And then what would happen after that is they would take the ashes from Moloch. They would take it to their place of residence and put it around the perimeter of their house saying, now I'm going to have the great crop that I wanted, but at what cost? They willingly put their children through the fire. And Deuteronomy, Leviticus, they talk about these things. And these are the things that Solomon's wives introduced into Israel. Amen. Jeremiah was a weeping prophet, not only because nobody repented, but this is what he had to fight in Jerusalem, was Moloch. Allow me to tell you of a valley right outside the southern portion of Mount Mount Zion. And that is the Valley of Hinnom. Pastor has talked about it before. It is the Valley of the Shadow of Death. It is also known as the Valley of Hell. And that is where Moloch and all the child sacrifices happened right outside the perimeter of the holy city of Jerusalem. Bodies upon bodies, ashes upon ashes. How, how, how did parents allow this God to get so close to their house? Because of a generational gap. Because Moloch was in in the Canaanite areas. Moloch was in the Ammonite areas. Moloch was in the Moabite areas. But how did it get to an Israelite area? This is what Jeremiah had to deal with. They would not relinquish. They would not repent from the devastation and the devouring of their children. And it is very prominent in this society today. And that year, in 587... To 586, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was burnt, the Ark of the Covenant was lost, all the furniture was gone. Daniel and the children of Israel were sent to Baghdad, or excuse me, to Babylon, Iraq. Those parents cannibalized their children out of desperation in that year of siege from the Babylonians. How do we get to this point? That generational gap. Life is precious in the sight of God. What have we allowed so close to our doorstep? What have we allowed to creep in generation after generation, year after year, to get right into our living room and our bedroom? Satan desires our generation. Satan desires my daughters. Satan desires my sons. But what have we done? How are we in their defense? How have we hardened our targets? What have we allowed in so close, right around the corner of a temple dedicated by Solomon himself, where the glory of God, the Shekinah of God, fell into where the ministers couldn't minister anymore. Generations later, Moloch was outside the temple, so close to the holies of holies. How? What have we allowed in, church? The church world has let things in because of complacency. The enemy allows it in. Amen. Allow me to remind you of Balaam. Balaam is found in the book of Numbers. Balaam was a a wizard and an operator of divination. 
the king of Moab was tired of being destroyed by the children of Israel, so he went to the soothsayer. He went to this operator of divination, Balaam. He said, please, Balaam, go curse Israel. Balaam said, okay, I'm going to go curse Israel. En route to Israel, his donkey sees an angel of the Lord, and they stop. And so Balaam starts punching on the donkey, trying to get him to go, and the donkey, through God, speaks and says, why are you beating me? There's an angel right there. To me, if my donkey began to talk to me, one, I'd have to check myself, but two, I would go to Moses. Uh, I'm no longer the wizard. I'm, I'll be an Israelite. Amen. I would think a cloud by day and a fire by night would do that, but a donkey talking to me would do that. Amen. And every time that Balaam tried to curse, it became a blessing for the children of Israel. So he had to stand to in front of the king of Moab. King of Moab's like, dude, I told you to curse them. He's like, listen, sir, their God is greater than what I can do. You are not going to be able to beat them head on as a collective. Do you not see the cloud by day, fire by night? Do you not understand the God that is with them? When, we, when they're together in unity, in one mind, one accord, there's nothing the enemy can do. But Balaam says, King, let me tell you how we can do it. You can't go at, all your chariots are going to die. All your horses are going to die. All your men are going to die if you go head on to the children of Israel. Let me tell you how you're going to do it. You're going to seduce them. This is found in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, where Balaam persuaded Balak, the king of Moab, to send and seduce the children of Israel, to persuade them, to manipulate them. Just like we are combating within our church. Combating within the church world. And so, the daughters of Moab would go to the tents of the children of Israel. And they would come say, okay, I'm here, I'm here. But before anything, according to Jewish tradition, they pulled out an idol of Baal Peor, which was the Moabite version of Moloch, and said, you worship this idol, and then you have. And so, 24,000. God sent a plague. It's in Numbers 25 and 26. God sent a plague and 24,000 died. What happened with that generational delinquency? Because of complacency. Once again, a golden calf was built after 40 days because of complacency. Amen. Amen. Parents, it's us. Church, it's us. Amen. We know that in Matthew 28, the great commission, the great commandment, the great assignment that God has given us, we are to go out and baptize, to teach, to preach, and to disciple. We don't have a choice. That's an order. And we say, Roger. Discipleship is where we begin to teach and to mentor and to grow individuals in Christ. Discipleship can be broken down into subcategories, youth, singles, marrieds, uh, premarital counseling, these type of discipleships, new converts. But family discipleship is our deficiency. Joshua chapter 22, verses 26 and 28. This is Joshua towards the latter part of the campaign, establishing the different regions with the 12 tribes of Israel and beginning to establish a generational 
expectation. Therefore, we said, let us now and go, and excuse me, let us now prepare to build us an altar, not for burnt offering nor sacrifice, that it may be a witness between us and you and our generations after us. What's happened to our altar? That we might do the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings. That your children may not say to our children in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. Ooh, man, I don't want my children, my grandchildren, the next generation to ever say that of me. That I had no part in the Lord. Amen. Therefore said we that it shall be when they shall say unto us to our generation in time to come that we may say again, behold, the pattern of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offering nor sacrifices, but it is a witness between us and you. It is a precept that was established for sacrificial offerings in the time of the law. What has happened to our altar that our generations to come, us as parents, we build an altar, whether it's to Baal, to Moloch, or to God. We build an altar. I have a responsibility as a father to build a memorial, a testimony, and an altar for Titus and Abigail and Gideon and Hadassah. I have that responsibility of a father to construct an altar for my next generation. Amen. Proverbs says, train up a child in the way they shall go, and when they grow old, they shall never depart from it. Let me ask you a question. May I submit this question to you? Is that a promise or a principle? What is it, Ima? It's a principle. It is not a promise. Once again, I've known many great men and women of God that have sacrificed and interceded and prayed and fasted for their children and taught their children. And, of course, there is that point where they are accountable for their decisions with God. But what is that gap? How do we invest in that gap? I pray and I believe and I submit into the atmosphere a prodigal son for those that are lost. They shall be found. Old things have passed away. My God makes all things new. But what do we do for our children until that point? Family discipleship is you, parents. It is not the church. The church's job is to equip you to disciple your children. Through the word of God, through the preaching of God, through teaching how to be situational aware of the hour and the generation that we live in. Fathers and mothers, God has assigned you to disciple your children. It is a mandate. Deuteronomy 6 says, Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all thy heart, soul, and might. It goes later on that you shall diligently teach your children. When they wake up, you shall teach them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. When they go to bed, you shall teach them. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. When you are sitting or walking, wherever it is, you are to teach them the things of God. Last time I checked when I woke up, we weren't having an altar call in my bedroom or my children's bedroom when they wake up. I would say good to see you all. Thank you. Last time I checked when they go to bed, we're not having an altar call with the entire church. Last time I checked when I'm on the road and my children ask about what they saw at Target, pastor's not there. It is you, parent. 
Mom, Dad, what's on this screen? Mom, Dad, this friend that I was spending the night with said this about God. That's not what pastor taught. What do I do? Do we check the ID? We had the background check. Are you authorized? Amen. Our children are a soft target. Our children are vulnerable parents. Once again, the church equips you to parent. But the discipleship of the family is you parent. Parent or guardian. Because we live in such a societal paradigm shift where it is moving away from the precepts of God. We knew that in Matthew 24 that this would be the beginning of sorrows. All these things would transpire. We are living, congratulations, in that postmodern society where we live in a society where there's no right, no wrong, however you feel, your perception, your perceived reality is reality until somebody disagrees with you and you're called a bigot. The word of God is yay and amen. Amen. Doesn't mean you're disrespectful. Doesn't mean you don't love them. Doesn't mean that you don't pray for them. Does not mean that you build a relationship so they could come to Jesus. I am not saying that. But do we protect our children? Because the enemy is not head on. He's subtle. He manipulates and he desensitizes. We have a societal normalization of things. And you could ask Miss Smith as a tech. It's this. It's this. Not the device itself. It's what comes through without being vetted. Without being checked. You could ask Miss Smith. Every time I have a situation as a campus technologist at my elementary school, I ask the teacher. Were you actively monitoring? No, Mr. Brown, I wasn't. Yeah, you're right. They were sitting under the desk playing with the iPad. And so I pull up the browsing history. Oh, my goodness, how does an 8-year-old know about this? How is a 9-year-old posting themselves in the restroom on TikTok, even though there's a lot of terms and conditions for that? They're not even 13. And so I call the parent concerned. Sir, ma'am, let me pull up a... A browsing history for you. Well, I just let them on the iPad at the house. It's, I let them just watch what they want. It's, it's okay. So can you imagine what happens at home without those blockers? And that, that's, that's in a secular school. What, what do we do here? Video games are just as bad as what's in movies anymore. They have ratings for a reason, and that's secular. Parents, I highly recommend uh, what Common Sense Media. It is a Christian-based uh, vetting system that you go on the website, you put any app, any game, any movie, any show, and it tells you exactly what's in there. But what do we let our children partake? What do we allow our children to I'm telling you, I am the NSA with my children. I hack everything. I say, Titus, what are you watching? Abigail, what are you watching? Because things are desensitized in YouTube pop-ups. Things are normalized in shows. Disney, 
veggie tales anymore that are contrary to the word of God. You've got to vet because the enemy persuaded generation after generation for not being situationally aware. How did Moloch get so close to Jerusalem? Because they were not situationally aware. Here's my babysitter, Mr. Apple. Once again, I'm the NSA with my children. I know everything that they're doing because I vet I've got to protect them. Parents, what do we do? Do we actively monitor? Amen. Do we protect our apostolic history? You know, Karl Marx, this is Elder Phillips' favorite person in history. I'm being facetious. Karl Marx is the father of Marxism, socialism, and communism. A failed system that had caused 150 million deaths since its inception. (laughs) Apparently, people that love it today forgot that part. But Karl Marx was very mischievous. He said, keep people from their history and they're easily controlled. And what's happening is that our society is trying to keep our godly history from us. Mothers and fathers, we've got to defend. We've got to vet. We've got to be situationally aware. We've got to teach them to pray. We've got to teach them, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Amen. And now I'm going to dive into something. I'm going to dive into something that is delicate, but we have to be situationally aware, correct? We've got to be careful who we let our kids spend the night with. We've got to be careful. I've got to pray or spend time with alone. Not just spend the night. Just socialization. Right? Of course, you know, we got to be careful what family members that are not in church. But we've got to be careful even in church. I've got to do a spiritual background check and vet. If I have brothers and sisters telling me some concerns, not out of rumor, but hey, out of love, or pastors telling me, man, be careful, I, I probably should heed the advice. I've got to vet. The Bible says, know them that labor among you. Is there an age limit to that scripture, Pastor? Starting at 18 to death. Nope. Know them that labor among you, right, that are in the church. That includes our youth. I don't want to send my son and daughter to to a place within the church or outside the church or whatever where it's an atmosphere where the person doesn't even want to live for God. Because it's going to persuade them. It's going to plant a seed. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual things, manipulation, and propaganda. I've got to be careful. Because what if they're allowed to see whatever online? And what if they're allowed to play whatever? As I said, I deal with stuff at at a school on the secular level. And that has crept into the church as a whole. But they they need a church plan. You're right. But you're going to have to vet and do a background check. Kind of like my daughters, they can't date until they're 46. But there's going to be a background check. And there's going to be a vetting. Because I've got to protect them. I know that fellowship is desperate. Yes, I understand. It is important. But you've got to vet. And you've got to do a background check. And you've got to be careful. 
Amen. Parents, I'm doing it out of love, and we have to be situationally aware because it does affect the human. It does affect the child, and it spreads if we don't keep it in check. Once again, how did Moloch get to Jerusalem? How did it get to Samaria? How did it get to Judea, to Judah, to Jerusalem? Amen. Exodus 28, and I'm going to close with this. Exodus 28 has a beautiful description of the Kohan Gadol, the high priest. And they discuss his garments. He's got a crown. He's got certain linen. He's got certain colors. He's got his bells, his pomegranates. But he has an ephod, and he has a breastplate. And that breastplate, everything in the dispensation of law and everything in the Old Testament and everything in those 613 mitzvot or those 613 commandments were a physical representation of the spiritual connotation of what God was trying to tell his people. And that high priest had the the very great responsibility of being the one to go into the holies of holies and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. But that breastplate had a beautiful significance because it had a, it had a, a stone, a precious stone to represent each of the 12 tribes of Israel. From Benjamin to Judah to Levi to Manasseh. And why was it put on his chest? Because it was next to his heart. The salvation and the well-being of all the children of Israel was on his heart at all times that he wrote, that he wore that priestly garment, that high priest garment that God called him to wear, that responsibility that he gave to all the children of Israel. Do we need to remember the children on our breastplate that God has given us in the spiritual sense? In my breastplate, I have a Titus. My breastplate, I have an Abigail. I have a Gideon, and I have a Hadassah because I'm responsible for their well-being. I don't want them exposed to the filth that God had delivered me from. I've got to keep them next to my heart. And the problem that is transpiring because we have a society that is attacking the very fabric of the family unit. We even have social justice movements saying that we deny, we reject the very notion and the established nuclear family. The nuclear family is father, mother, children. God established. And we know that situations transpire. We know that because the enemy attacks families. But do we have them on our breastplate? Do we have our children next to our heart? Or do we need to have their names re-etched in the stones on our breastplate? Not only that, with the breastplate, there were the shoulder straps that held the breastplate. On each shoulder was another stone. A stone here and a stone here. You had six tribes on one and six tribes on the other based on birth order. And the reason that he had that is because he had the weight of every tribe on his shoulders. He had the weight on the heart. He had the burden of his children on his heart. Those that God gave him the responsibility on their heart at all times. And we are to be a royal priesthood. If you are the one that has stepped up as a father, you are the priest of the household. And you have the weight of that breastplate. You have the weight of those names on your shoulders at all times. You carry that salvation. 
You carry their well-being spiritually on your shoulders. God, bring back the remembrance of these stones. God, bring into remembrance the breastplate of the names. Somebody here tonight, I pray that there was reflection that was produced in tonight's message. I pray that our exhaustion and our fatigue did not cloud what is going out because we are losing too many of our children. I pray in Jesus' name there weren't too many distractions that hindered what went out. We've got to combat for our youth. Amen. The building of character starts at the house. Remember your breastplate. And remember the stones. Amen. May the Lord bless Amen. you. Amen. Praise the Lord.